For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Once we get to the other side of the COVID-19 crisis, circular and regenerative systems are going to be even more important. Actually, last week's guest, David Ritter, just wrote a great piece about this, one of the newspapers here, all about the need to rebuild the economy with sustainability in mind. And I just wrote an op-ed for Business of Fashion along similar lines. So everyone's talking about this, but how do we do it case by case? This week's guest, British accessories designer Anya Heinmarsh, has already started. Our interview was recorded at London Fashion Week, which seriously feels like another era. But Anya's story is, I think, absolutely relevant right now. What kinds of products do we want to put out in the future? How can we rethink our design practices and material choices? And how can we persuade the customer that this matters? This is a whirlwind conversation with a handbag legend. I hope you're enjoying the show. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it when you send me your comments and questions on social media and when you leave ratings and reviews in iTunes. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. But now let's hear from Anya. Anya, how much welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis Thank you podcast. very much. I'm super excited to be here. Why don't you start by telling us where we are? Because we're in your HQ. <laughs> My HQ sounds very grand. We're in an old stable, actually, in uh, Battersea in London. Uh, we've been here a long time. We've been here about 15 years. It goes really quickly, doesn't it? We have actually everyone under one roof, which is really nice. So we have uh, design, we have production, PD, product development. We have the web team, with the sales team, graphics, design. Tea and biscuits. Yeah, tea and biscuits. With a lot of a lot of biscuits. I believe in biscuits. You've uh, got behind <laughs> me some rather spectacular boots. The boots, boots. In fact, um, so the project we did a while ago, where we took all the high street um, sort of well-known logos, and uh, we had to have a pair of boots. Boots, obviously. So, You're yeah. very clever and very conceptual in your presentations, and I want to start talking about London Fashion Week because. Most handbag designers don't do Fashion Week, and I know you do more than handbags, but you know, most accessories designers who don't do apparel don't do Fashion Week, but you've done extraordinary presentations. I've been lucky to be at loads of them. What about that one that, where all the set was circular and geometric oh, and moved favorite. around? Well, was when was that? Yeah. Spring 17. Oh, bad on yeah. dates, you know. I mean, I think the thing is that accessories are, I always think it's a bit like the icing on the cake, in a way. It's all the fun bits, you know, and um, I'm bored of the sponge. I like the icing, mostly. And so, actually, you can take that and play with those ideas through communication, through shows. And, I mean, that gives me real pleasure. It really does. It's but you're creating... Doing sort of huge set pieces. I mean, I'm thinking about, what about the barcode one? Yeah, that was, yeah. We had five conveyor belts. So we were talking about the beautiful graphics and graphics that make you feel like it's part of your childhood when you go to a supermarket and you see Cocoa Pops and you see Frosties and um, Cornflakes. And so we had a whole set devoted to the graphics and the beauty, in a way, of the graphics of, of the supermarket. So we had five conveyor belts. Um, shopping trolleys. Shopping trolleys. of the accessories. And it ended with these dancers jumping across between all of the conveyor belts. So, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's all about the fun of doing it. But I think it makes content, it, um, it communicates the brand well which is nice what about the one i wasn't at this but there is a spectacular show that we'll share a link you can watch it online where you built a whole set of how many dominoes yeah, <laughs> it was something like eighty thousand. and actually it was funny because i was so calm because the man mr domino world record holder who did it for us was such a pro on doing this and and they had to lay as they called them the tiles the dominoes 
And they do it over sort of seven days. You have to have no vermin, no, you know, the ventilation. No you vermin, really watch. Like well, if you have a rat, a mouse it will come and, yeah, you would knock it all down. Yeah, come so, on. No, no, well, of course. You know, think about it. And any sort of, you know, any, any wind, any sort of gust would be a nightmare. So you'd set up, or they set up this spectacular moment from however many tens of thousands of dominoes that would then fall and as they fell it would trigger these mechanisms that would pop the bags up on pedestals etc so we, I mean, built, come we on. built the set with the bags <laughs> inset there was an animatronic so it would essentially open and on top and then we closed it all down on top of that we laid all these 80,000 dominoes I think it was 80,000 and of course the, what happened you know I would set off at the beginning and it would go all the way around and, and it would dismantle these huge great structures and then the bags would reveal you couldn't practice it you couldn't no, you couldn't practice. And I was so calm about it, I don't know why, until the night before when it was getting, you know, everything was built in these huge great towers. And um, Where was it? It was in uh, Westminster University in the basement because it was a sort of a gust-free area. But the last, suddenly the last few hours, it was like watching a child on a balcony without a, uh, a sort of a, a balustrade. That's how it felt. It felt pretty damn bright. Vertigo. Yeah, but we did it. It worked. Yeah, we did it. Now, Anya, were those dominoes made of plastic? They were. Those were the days, right? <laughs> I hope they were recycled. I don't know. It was a number of years ago. Now, segue alert. This season at London Fashion Week for Autumn Winter 2021, you had no show, but you did put on a show of sorts in your shops. What do you do? Well, we, um, back in 2007, um, we launched something called I'm Not a Plastic Mag. And uh, the idea, very simply, was about using the platform of of fashion to raise awareness for the abuse, if you like, of single-use plastic. So therefore, we launched at Fashion Week this this new project called I Am a Plastic Mag. So to launch that... um, I wanted to do something that was quite arresting because um, the research I've done, particularly over the last two years, where you know there's eight billion tons of plastic on the planet, and how people are so disconnected from you know when they put something into a bin, even if it's a recycle bin, they don't know what happens, and actually how to connect people to the fact that it's quite disgusting if you don't. I mean, if you recycle it, okay, but the amount that actually we don't manage to recycle. Um, I would say that if you had to plant or dig into your own garden and bury the amount of plastic that you oh might God. send to landfill, and my garden's not that large in London, you would just stop taking single-use plastic. And so the point of the Fashion Week idea was to fill the stores, close the stores, the three flagships, and to fill them with 90,000 bottles, um, which was six seconds of world consumption. So it was pretty shocking. I've just got to say, because it occurred to me, have you ever seen that series of photographs? I've forgotten the name of the photographer, but we'll look it up and share links, where families were photographed lying in the detritus, rather beautifully arranged around them, of, I think it was a week's rubbish and plastic I, remember, I do remember that actually yeah. and it's just shocking so people it's almost too easy but I mean it goes away and someone said to me you know when you throw something away there is no away and that's something that was said to me at the end of the 2007 project and it's just been rattling around my head ever since so coming back to what you actually did so you filled three of your London stores and let's imagine what that means because you're talking about Bond Street foot traffic etc you closed them during one of the presumably busy times on the calendar of London Fashion Week, you filled them with how many plastic bottles? So 90,000. Which you... Which we found. So I shared this on Instagram and somebody commented, well, where did they come from? And I hope they're going to be considered carefully afterwards. Like as if you'd gone out there and bought a load of new plastic <laughs> bottles and put them in the windows. Well, expensive, actually. That's not what you did. What did you do? So we had to find 90,000, which is a huge number. And so we tasked everyone in the company to come up with 500. So they had to contact their local schools, gym, anywhere put that was throwing away. Yeah. And they did have to do some bin diving, as we called it. We had, did have one hilarious thing on the way back from the Eurostar, which is 
is, you know, sorry to name and shame, but, was, you know, rich harvesting for plastic bottles. Oh, because people just leave them on the train. And so we just went down with bin bags and just collected and collected and collected. You know, I mean, that's oh, thousands wow. per day. It was a project to try to raise really awareness in ourselves. You, well, it really made you realise how much plastic there is and how many bottles are just discarded. Because, I mean, I like to think that if I was to take something that I, well, I know I would, I would recycle it, I would make sure. Or better still, I'd just reuse it again and again and again, because that's the point. But it was shocking, honestly. And I think it, it was a real kind of company community project. So everyone had to find 500 and they had to delabel them and wash them. So it was, and it was a slog, honestly. How did that go down when you said in your first meeting when you'd come up with this idea, I've got a plan for you? Well, it was, it was everyone's on board and it's such a great team and everyone understood the project. The dilemma is I had to break down the 500 until, you know, week one, you have to come up with 75, week two, etc. And of course, and I did have to slightly name and shame, put pressure on people. And I felt so Oh, God, did you have a board, like I a leaderboard? I did, I did. I've, I've kept it as a frame. Kate you know, has got 700. <laughs> she was some unnameable person, only got a five. <laughs> and we just said, you have to, if you found a rich source of, you know, there was park runs, for example, which were, were a big source of plastic bottles, and every every week we could collect several hundred. What do you mean where people go on people runs go in, in the park? Runs, exactly. And, and they take a reusable. And so we would collect them from there. And actually that was just, we could get several hundred per week. And so the people who weren't collecting, we would buddy the people who had a good ritual. So we sort of found a way through it. Anyway, we got to the number. But and it you, was phenomenal. You took all the product and the stock out of your stores and you they were closed for business for those three days and you produced this installation, which is basically a giant confronting pile of used plastic PET bottles that had been washed in the windows and through the stores. But, and it's more complicated than that in a funny way also because, first of all, they're also a little bit wet, so you have a huge humidity problem. We left in the top row, so the bottles filled to the top shelf. So the top shelf, we decided just to leave the bags on. And, in fact, there was actually a picture I saw a long time ago of, in fact, the Celine store in Venice, which was flooded. I don't know if you ever saw that image, mm-hmm. um, which was, again, quite shocking. When you see climate change affect things that's so incongruous in a way, like, you know, a handbag shop full of water or a handbag shop full of bottles. It's extra shocking because it, it's the kind of juxtaposition in a way. So I wanted it also, though, to be quite a beautiful thing, which sounds strange. I wanted to shock people, but I wanted it to kind of feel a bit like an art installation as well, yeah. hence the removing all the labels and, and making it something that was quite curious to look at. It was complicated also because getting all the bottles in and then getting out of the what, store... Just people with, I don't know... Well, we had to laundry re- sacks in well, the back we had of their cars. Huge sort of linen sacks, and we brought them all in and poured them all in. But then we had to get out of the store. So they got a very funny video. Oh, because they all come out the yeah, door. Exactly. So you literally got to get out. This, you know, in Stone Street, there were fifty-two thousand three hundred and twenty, and you know, the final bit when he had to kind of climb out and kind of keep pushing the doors, and they had this sort of system of piece of wood, and they could finally get out and throw the more bottles in and finally lock the door. Uh, it's quite a lot of planning that goes into those things, and never it's not as easy as it sounds. Okay. Now, before we talk about why. And the project, I am a plastic bag. There was another setup during London Fashion Week, which was a press dinner, very glamorous press dinner. I was very lucky to attend. I had a very nice neighbour, seem to remember. <laughs> it was me. Oh, <laughs> thanks, mate. <laughs> so that was a really great forum to get those people in a room who have power to talk about and sell and raise conversations in the fashion space. Lots of media, people from Nesta Porto, matches, etc., influencers. Mary Cray. She's been on this podcast. We'll oh, share gosh. a link. Mm-hmm. She gave a great speech. Your friend, Neil Grundon. Who is? So in the research for this project, which is sort of two years, um, I really wanted to go and see where the recycling is taken. And so I visited um, Grundon's, which is one of the biggest family-owned recycling companies in in London. Um, They do all of Heathrow. They do a huge amount. I think it's a million bin lifts a year. So I wanted to go and see how things recycle, what they can't recycle, what happens to the plant, actually. And it was fascinating. And I would urge anyone who wants to know, I think all kids should go and see a recycling centre, because when you see how it works, you realise that actually it works, it's pretty efficient. I mean, they can really reclaim, you know, most of what they receive. And what they can't receive, they actually 
put into a furnace and make into renewable energy. So it's pretty cool, actually. So, you know, we want to take less stuff, but as long as we recycle it, actually, it's okay. But, um, but you actually had this flashy dinner, let's face it, with all the gorgeous fashion people, and then you gave Neil a platform to stand up and just talk about bins. Well, <laughs> I you know what? <laughs> I wanted to connect people to the coalface. And I think, you know, it's so easy to be sort of sitting in Westminster or sitting in the front row and pontificating as we all can about, you know, how we should behave. But actually, you need to go to the people who are dealing with it, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's the important thing. So um, I went to several um, different uh, recycling places and the Grundons is, is huge and very automated. So it's really interesting to see. And I mean, so they have a, with milk bottles, for example, they have a pretty much a closed loop um, system. So, you know, milk bottle comes in and gets turned straight back into another milk bottle and it just, you know, two weeks later, it's back on the shelf. So, so material to material. Yeah. Or are they washing them out? They will send, Grundons actually send them on to the manufacturer who will then turn them back into milk bottles. So they will work with someone. But it's closed loop. And we also worked with a really cool company where all the bottles went afterwards called Clean Tech. The PET Tech. bottles. The PET yeah. bottles, the ones in the window where they went afterwards, which is, they're called Clean Tech and they're in Lincolnshire. And they are closed loop plastic bottles. So they receive the recycled PET and turn them straight back into bottles. Which brings us to the reason for these installations. And I should say at the dinner, there were plastic bottles all around the table and we were <laughs> kicking them out of the way, which when you've given a license to do that, it's quite fun <laughs> when you know there's a reason. What is the reason? So you mentioned that in 2007, and I'm sure listeners remember this because everyone knew about it, I'm not a plastic bag was one of your big, big phenomena. I mean, it was talked about all over the world. Let's go back to that. Tell us the story of I'm not a plastic bag. So um, a man called Tim Ashton knocked on our door from Antidote, an advertising agency, um, and he was working with a, a, a social change movement called We Are What We Do. And they brought out a book called Change the World for a Fiver. The book had several actions inside it. It might be, for example, talk to all people they know good stuff. Um, That's a good so, one. Yeah, nice I'm one, actually. One. Yeah. Um, and one of the actions was, wherever possible, refuse plastic bags. And they were trying to, I suppose, bring awareness to the different actions. And they approached me saying, could I find a way to amplify the message through what we do? And back in 2007, it was a time when everyone was mentioning the word environment. And honestly, we didn't know what to do as individuals. We should just throw a bit of context in here because, and I'm sure regular listeners of this podcast will be aware that 2007 was the Inconvenient Truth era. Yes, so that right. film was in cinemas and people were suddenly looking at the environment, at climate. Around the same time, Vanity Fair had their first green issue. We were talking about this the other day. It was green in that it looked at activisms and government and geopolitical issues and the environment. But clothes weren't coming into it. They had Julia Roberts on the front wearing a green dress up a tree. It wasn't <laughs> a sustainable dress. <laughs> but that, at that time, there was this, perhaps the first wave... Of awareness. the first wave, because that would have been the 60s, wouldn't it? But the first wave of the recent environmental conversation, I think, hit then. I think that's absolutely right. And so for me, sort of just... And you're right, all those sort of influences probably just was hearing sort of unconsciously to a certain extent. I don't extent. think we were talking that much about plastic or plastic pollution. I certainly wasn't aware of it. Well, I think landfill and was something that I was sort of aware of, uh, and yet I was the person who was buying the, you know, going to the supermarket, getting a, you know, single-use plastic bag, doubling up and then putting them in the bin. I mean, I really was. Double you know, bag. Don't. I mean, I'm, I'm like smoking. I feel like an idiot. But you know, the fact is, we weren't aware because um, the cans might be too heavy for the first bag. People still do this, you know. 
You know, it's, I was actually reading that the man whose father invented the plastic bag, he said he would be turning in his grave right now because he invented them because he actually wanted to stop people felling trees because so much paper was so bad for deforestation. And he made a plastic bag which he kept in his pocket for 10 years and reused the same plastic bag. You're also telling me about your mother or someone in your family anyway, and I'm sure listeners will find this resonates, but saving plastic bags like Ziploc ones, washing them out and reusing She still does, she still does. In fact, I come from a plastics family, so I tell you this at dinner. <laughs> My father... Happened to know this <laughs> do you no, it's not just the that later. it's your secret plastic past <laughs> yeah. your father she's trying to get me um, <laughs> didn't so, he invent a certain type of plastic flower pot yes or at least he did so the the, in those in those good old days they were lovely clay sustainable flower pots and of course plastic was this amazing new material where you could you know it's lightweight and and so he he invented the plastic flower pot as i understand it so i was all my childhood in plastics factories seeing he always used recycled plastics all old yogurt pots coming in that really? he would chip from, up for and, thrifty reasons uh Probably, I don't know. I think so. Probably because it was yes. Probably as much as anything. Yeah, a sensible feedstock. His, his source. Cheap, probably. Yeah. And, how interesting. Um, yeah, and it was interesting seeing actually how plastic works. 80s. And yeah, yeah. So I'm 51 now. So yeah, when I was you know I was young. So I kind of know about plastic. And, and he would say you know actually plastics are rather brilliant material. And actually talking to a lot of people, they say you know it's great getting plastic-free aisles in supermarkets. But actually plastic does prolong shelf life for food. It does actually help in so many ways. So it's the abuse of plastic that is. Bad. I think it's very easy if you are, for example, an activist or very passionate about an issue, whether it be climate or human rights, or in this case, fighting plastic pollution, to refuse to look at the shades of grey in the conversation. I'm sure I'm guilty of it too. We need to get rid of plastic. Plastic's evil. Maybe if I did a plastic bag alternative, I would have on it, plastic's evil. But that's not a useful <laughs> conversation because no. we know it's useful, for example, to make the insides of planes or medical equipment or you know, dot, dot, dot. So yeah. it's not possible to say it's all bad. It's how we treat it that's bad. I mean, in some ways, and people will shoot me down for this, but I think it's important to apply common sense as well. And so if we have this, you know, 8 billion tonnes of, of plastic on the planet, it's just, let's not make new plastic, let's just use what we have. And that's the point of this project now. And I mean, I think a good example of that actually is that if everyone's rushing to buy a new aluminium water bottle, great, but that's probably come from China. It's super heavy, super expensive. Just keep your... Actually, aluminium is quite light. Well, still heavier than plastic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it, actually, if you just keep the plastic bottle that you already have, as I do, and wash it out and use it, and I've used it for eight years, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a very clever um, material. Okay, come back to this moment in time when green issues were on the ascendancy and you'd been approached by this advertising agency to try to do something to amplify the message in this book. What did you do? So we decided to make a reusable shopping bag made out of cotton. Kill me now. Didn't know much at the time. And the aim was very simply awareness. Can it I was, just say, yeah. did you say that because you feel that cotton's bad now if it's not organic and it's got its associated Yes, because problems. I think it's very thirsty as a crop. So I think it is a problem. So, But, you know, the fact is that I always say to everyone, you know, you have to crack a few eggs to make an omelette. You know, we were all learning. I'm still learning. I mean, I'm never going to say I'm perfect. I'm just trying to find the common sense in everything. But it's also back to that first point that... It's not easy to say this or this. X is good, Y is bad. It, there are shades. There are so many shades. And talking to a lot of experts through this process of the last two years, there's a lot of conflicting advice. So I think we're all learning together. So I really strongly believe this is about progress, not perfection. And we must just all just get started because you learn and, and we will improve all the way. And I think if people just get shouted down for trying to do something that's wrong, we should praise people who are starting. I think it's really important to do that. Um, so this bag you made was cotton 
with leather trim. No leather trim. It had a, a kind of a... Oh, no, because she did it with Sainsbury's. Yeah, well, yeah. So we designed this bag, which is this really nice-looking, quite arresting, with this logo, I'm not a plastic bag, on it. We sold it, first of all, the first sort of distribution was through what we call the kind of golden circle of stores, the kind of Dover Street Markets, the uh, Colette in those days in Paris, um, of course, the Coma, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of really gorgeous stores around the world. And then the next wave was through Sainsbury's, who were brilliant, because they really, they, you know, you could argue the source of the problem with supermarkets. They really wanted to crack this issue as well. How much was that bag? Five pounds. And so we Probably launched... not leather trims then. No, sadly not. Um, but so we launched the bag. By the time it got to the launch at Sainsbury's, uh, and we did London, they went around the world, but there were 80,000 people that queued for that bag in the UK on that one launch day. And then we went to, you know, New York the same, Tokyo people. i never forget, I had dinner the night before the launch, which was at 10 o'clock the next morning. People queued all the way around Isatan, the store we launched in overnight, and around the next block and the next block. And then it, you know, Hong Kong and LA. There were injuries. Um, Yes, in Taiwan we stopped it. In Taiwan we launched, and thirty people went to hospital. So in a, in a it, scrum to get the thing, it I mean, literally was so a stampede. Weird. How I do you build such momentum around a product? Well, it was sort of almost using the the formula, if you like, of the it bag in a strange way. To a certain extent, there was scarcity. There was, you know, the right people wearing it. And but our aim was awareness. We got loads of awareness. But actually, much, much more importantly, it made a difference. Um, and so the British Retail Consortium estimate that before the project in the UK, single-use plastic bags were 10 billion in consumption, which went down to 6.1 after the project. So it because had a of what really big impact. Yes, it was about awareness. And and as a consequence, you know, all the supermarkets started saying, "Don't take some." use bags buy a bag for life Wales pretty quickly Wales amazing actually introduced a tax a charge and in 2015 and then finally the UK government introduced a, a, by law a charge plastic bags and it's gone on around the world so many people have banned them that's amazing we will share I will create giving myself extra jobs a timeline of world actions on banning plastic bags or incentivizing it's really interesting way. when you see that yeah Australia is so exactly. late really, Australia is yeah. like just phenomenally late you know I forget whether it was last year or the year before. Yeah. Well, listen, they've done it. Yeah. That's what's important. So again, praise what's happening. So so it made a real difference. And so I kind of thought, I've done that. That was amazing. I mean, it was, you know, this was obviously not for profit. It was a huge onslaught. It was baptism by fire. It was front page news. I had to go to 10 Downing Street. You know, it was it was fraught with difficulty in many ways and very different from what I do in my day job, obviously. Who was in power 2007? Gordon Brown. Breakfast Gordon Brown on the project. <laughs> um, and so I thought back to my day job and off I went. So... Here we are, 2020, and the problem obviously is so far from sorted. So I felt it was time to go back, but I think the conversation has moved on so much, and it's not obviously just about awareness anymore, um, clearly, but actually it's about the circularity of materials. So, you know, and I see this firsthand that, you know, you spend so much energy and effort designing and making something, prototyping something, then it's sold. And the UK apparently, Mary Cray said to me, get the stats right, but we, I think we're the people who wear things for the least amount of time, which is shocking. And then it goes into landfills, and then people are not properly recycling. So that's a linear, you know, and Ellen MacArthur is the best at talking about this, that's the linear method method that unfortunately we, we suffer from. So how can we get to the stage where we are reusing materials that exist? So for me, I'm digging into this wealth of um, plastic bottles that I can reuse, and then that we actually wear it. And then either, and probably in my case, probably my level of product, it's either then going to be sold on as a sort of pre-loved or rented or sold through various different sites, and then all recycled. So it's completely circular. Do you want to touch on the problems and how you solve them with creating your I am a plastic bag because you're using recycled PET, which I think is a pretty familiar material. Everyone knows what that is. But you had a challenge in terms of making the hand feel up to your standards because this is luxury, right? 
sure is. So we wanted to make, um, wanted to use our PET, which is recycled PET at plastic bottles, um, which, as you say, is not new. That exists. But I wanted to make something that had a very, very natural feel. And so it took a long time to achieve that. And, of course, because it feels so natural, it also gets quite dirty. So I needed to find a way to protect it, to have a coating on it. But I wanted that to be recycled as well. And so the only uh, way we could find to do that was we actually managed to extract PVB which is another type of plastic laminate which is used between the glass of windscreens to stop it shattering if it smashes so we managed to extract the PVB to then use that as a coating the kind of glossier coating on the side of this what feels like a very natural cotton canvas but is it toxic sounds a bit toxic well, you don't want to leave it in landfill, that's for sure. So much better to reuse so it. So you're and using recycled version of that, like it's yeah. yeah. It's so re- we're, we're recapturing. We're right. recapturing exactly. So, so it's how can we reuse what's already there? That's the project. It's not cheap. This bag. When we talk about five pounds for the version available in Sainsbury's more than a decade ago, this one's what six hundred quid or something more. Well, thank you for bringing that up because it's a really important point. Because a, this is very very difficult to do. So I mean, it's incredibly expensive, and we certainly will not make any profit from this first wave of this project. So it's really expensive. It's exploratory and it's complex it's actually proper modern craftsmanship you know extracting these materials it's much easier just to make something new so it's complicated to do the bag is really beautifully made in our workshop in Florence we've trimmed with leather which is another subject we should touch on really interesting um, which we felt actually on balance is the right thing to do compared to recycled leather which has a high PU content because they stick it together, bind it, it together. They mash it up and then they mix it back together plastic. again with plastic. Um, vegan leather is mostly just plastic. And some of the plant-based alternatives are super interesting, but they're not quite there yet for what we need. So we went full circle back to leather that's a byproduct of the meat industry that doesn't deforest with full traceability of the skins, that's treated and tanned in a certain way, which is gold standard working leather group, etc., etc., is actually the most responsible way now. But, you know, this is all about progress. So as we learn and, and uh, find other routes, we, we will update. But so to your question on cost i think it's really important actually that that we all brands and customers think differently much better to buy fewer things if you're going to buy 20 things that are not very expensive better to buy one thing that's quite expensive that's but the better way to, to say that to people who can afford to buy a super expensive product but you work in the luxury sector fair enough what do you think your role is then with this project and i guess it's a broader question on i kept reading that you don't like to think of yourself as an eco warrior which i think is good yeah. because it's accessible to say I'm yeah. a person just trying to do the best I can I'm absolutely not an eco I'm, I'm the you know like guilty as anyone of wanting to do lovely things and have things and make beautiful things I'm just trying to find the common sense the dream is and I think it's really important I don't I, mean, I have a business no one needs another handbag I'm sure Greta would say just stop making handbags I employ hundreds of people if they're all hungry and don't have jobs, then all the priorities of, of this climate crisis, and I believe it to be that, will just fall down everyone's priority list. So we need to find a way to not have to change that much. And so I think there's two things that will or happen. To thrive within an existing system if you can't yeah. smash the walls down. Exactly. So I think that there's two things. One, people have to all behave a bit more responsibly. And there's lots of ways of doing that that don't ruin your life. There's you know, some fun ones, actually. And some of them you have to Listen suck it to up the a oldies. bit. <laughs> well, that, certainly. Um, and my God, if you go back to behaving like our grandparents, it'd probably solve all the problems, honestly. But so it's about changing and being sensible, but it's also about innovation. So I think what's exciting about this I am a plastic bag is not that it's, you know, perfection. It's a journey. It's an you idea. Hate the word journey. I hate the word journey. And I just used it. Because oh we're God. very English. We hate the word journey. It's gross. It's a very American thing. <laughs> How did you start in this journey? I know. Blech. Sorry, Americans. Yes. She said it, not me. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it's a project. And I think it's about saying, let's reuse what already exists. Let's apply common sense. 
Your dad is still on your board, is that right? He is, yeah. What does he think about all this, being as he's got that He thinks we're all a bit hysterical. Pots. He thinks we're all a bit hysterical, but, you know, he's very much of that age. But I think he does absolutely understand that we need to change and we need to behave sensibly. We're talking super fast because we have no time. This is a rapid <laughs> interview, but I cannot, dating. I want to finish by going back to the beginning yeah. briefly. You began your business at 19. 18, I think, even. Yes, very, very You're young. You're a teenager. Yeah. You went to Florence. You figured out how to do it. Yeah, I learned with the craftsman, which is much the best way to learn. I was rather impatient in the classroom, so I wanted to kind of work on in the field. Um, and I still get a complete buzz out of craftsmanship. That's the thing that I get out, but out sort of bed for every day. But what sort of person starts a handbag line when they're 18? You know what? It was that time. I come from an entrepreneurial family. I love making things. Um, I have a good brain, but I would be bored as an academic. I wanted to crack on. And, and it was just it's still fun. I love it. I mean, I love making beautiful things, working with people who are really talented. And the pride and the time and the energy and the love that is poured into a beautiful product is something that must be kept. You know, it's really people must learn to enjoy things. It's disrespectful, honestly. You know, to have something for a season actually is a bit disgusting. Actually, I'll tell you a story. Um, you used to employ one of my friends, Anthony Kendall. Oh, lovely. Divine aunt. Yeah. I think that's how we met. Or I did yeah. a story about you a very long time ago for maybe Vogue, maybe Harper's Bazaar. I can't remember. But you sent me a bag in thanks. I always say I don't accept gifts. I do if they're nice. <laughs> um, it's like a perfect satin clutch with uh, embroidered vision of a magazine as if you'd folded a magazine under your arm yeah. and it's got a raffia attached yes, to it yes, it's I bloody it. fantastic yeah, yeah. still using it well there you go 15 years later there you go still obviously it's not a daily bag yeah. still a fancy bag but yeah. it's still exactly but that's the point I think fashion that is of a moment is it just feels wrong to me partly because I just feel sort of heartbroken for the, the amazing cross people that I see who you know poured all that love and care in so I think you know we need to make it fashionable I mean I have a, a lovely Aussie Clark dress which I paid quite a lot of money for it's a vintage dress it now for 150 grand well yeah maybe i should <laughs> find uh, that next bag yeah, exactly and i've worn it probably 120 times and every time i put it on i feel great and i think we just need to make it a badge of honor to kind of go this is my favorite dress and i've worn it loads so it's just changing the um the language and you know that doesn't mean you don't have to buy beautiful things but um not quite so often okay so mrs not eco warrior who started <laughs> a business as a teenager and now has a long view on how fashion has shifted do you want to finish by sharing with us what you think fashion has to do in 2020 and beyond because you say you're not a sustainable brand or an eco warrior and that's not your guiding light you talk about wanting to maintain craftsmanship and keep business thriving but where is fashion headed in these difficult times and what would you like to see happen in this space so I don't think those things are conflicting. So I'm laughing about myself not being an eco, and my kids told me often so that was an insulting term. But my point is that I oh, think... they want you to be one. Well, they just said that might insult people. You know, I, it was interesting, mm. that was their take. But I think the point is that the more sensible, sustainable, overused word, common sense behaviour has to become the norm. So one of those things is we have a whole load of materials that are destined for landfill. Let's work with them. Let's minimise waste. Let's... Um, behave in a way that's respectful and caring of communities and workforces and pollution and you know water supplies and all the things that just that's common sense to me so it's about digging into our supply chains me too right though and looking at every aspect of it we just looked at all of our packaging and oh my god we've changed everything it was shocking what we were doing so much stuff so um, it's about admitting where you're wrong right so it's just actually digging in and chipping off chipping 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 so don't panic if it's not perfect get started and it's amazing what you learn it's a bit like when you not for me, but when you go to the gym and you start... What day you start, go? Start, 
trying to do it. And then you start eating in a better way. You know, it just, it sort of becomes a vicious cycle. It's like you go to the gym and then you're like, I need a reward. I'll have this marzipan <laughs> no, bar. No, no, quite and the reverse. I think you go to the gym, you feel good, and then you kind of eat the salad. So the point is, it's you, you start thinking a different way. This has to become the norm. That plus big innovation and some obviously big, I think, in some respects, some governmental input. If we can all come together on the subject, we can make a big difference, I think. Can I just pick you up briefly on that? Would you like to see government regulation with regards to incentivizing materials, for example? I honestly think if we could, for example, give perhaps a VAT break, as an example, to uh, recycled materials. For some, it's, I think that, unfortunately, people do respond. So I'm not pro a nanny state. I love it coming from people, and I think it is, and, and some people. But actually, if there are... People do chase profit and actually that's a great way to incentivize fast change and and I'm seeing it I'm seeing that if I go to the leather fairs the stands that are busy are the ones that are certified that are behaving properly and the ones that aren't are looking at the ones that are busy going oh, hang on a second that will make them change their behavior more quickly than anything so that's let's use that let's finish on a final question which is what have you learned through this this particular process which you might say is a decade-long process if you look back yeah. to where it began yeah well I've learned common sense should be your guiding light because there's so much conflicting information I've learned that I think we need to be positive about this because I think if you're negative people just give up and go you know what what can I do and I think we can do loads I'm a great believer in the power of innovation because I think that we are creative people and we will find a way through this we have to it's it's imperative I think fashion is a great communicator I think that we need to praise people for doing something rather than being negative about not being perfect I mean so much I'm really so so much um and so I you know and I think if everyone can do their bit that's really what we need to do you're one of my listeners and now you're my interviewee I know I'm so proud (laughs) I'm just dropping that in because I'm proud thank you so much it's such a great pleasure thank you very much thank you thanks Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you.